Uh, we will be continuing our lecture series on soteriology called the Doctrines of Grace or Calvinism. Uh, last Sunday we looked at the second doctrine of grace, the you in the tulip, unconditional election. That's what we focused on. Uh, we learned that unconditional election means that election unto salvation is not based on any conditions spiritually dead sinners must meet, but entirely upon the mercy of God. God chose His people before the foundation of the world. Why? Because of something that He saw us doing in the future? Absolutely not. Entirely because He is merciful. Uh, not, not at all that He looked into the future to see what we were doing. That's what the Arminian belief is. The Calvinist believes that God did it on His mercy only. Uh, we say that uh, faith is not requisite to election. It is the result of election. Those appointed to eternal life shall believe, right? That's what we focused, at, focused on in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, which is just a, an amazing verse. Uh, we learn that when God mercifully predestined His people to salvation before the foundation of the world, He simultaneously predestined everything pertaining to their salvation. That would be regeneration and the calling of the Spirit and faith and repentance and justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification, which is kind of the final thrust of our salvation. And that really takes place not just when we go to heaven, but when we are resurrected. So, so He predestined for all of these dominoes to sort of fall into place over time. And of course, we interact with these things and are the recipients in time and space. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at the third doctrine of grace, the L in TULIP, and that stands for Limited Atonement. Limited atonement means that the atonement Jesus Christ made on the cross is limited in its scope and applies only to those for whom God chose for salvation before the foundation of the world. It means that Jesus died to save His special people, the elect, not the entire world, not every literal man, woman, and child for all time. Limited atonement means that Jesus died to save His people and His people alone. Now, some of you are probably recoiling at this point in your mind because that's not what you have been taught. That's not what you have heard. And maybe you don't think that the Bible actually teaches what I'm talking about here. And, and we're going to get into this, so it'll help you. But really, I think of, of the doctrines of grace, if you lay out all five of them, Limited atonement, the one smack dab in the middle, the L, it is the most misunderstood, it is the most debated, and I would say that it is the most despised doctrine in the group. I remember years ago discussing, and it was a great conversation. It wasn't heated, I wasn't argumentative like normal, um, I wasn't mad or anything. We were just having a discussion. It was me and a young adult pastor over at Big Valley, we were having a discussion on the atonement, and I started talking about limited atonement, and, and he got, you talk about mad, he got, he got fired up zero to 60. He was ticked off, and he just starts yelling, hey, Jesus died to save everybody, you know, and then he says this, I could never love a God who would only choose to save some. And at that point, I said, but you do love a God who did that, and that, and that was a stupid thing for me to say. Uh, you know, at that point, that's where I was being antagonistic, but he, he just, he, he, it's imprinted on his brain, right, that, that 
Christ came to save all unilaterally, and, and, that's, and that's really the, the mindset that I had before I started looking into these doctrines and really studying the Word on this, but this doctrine in the group causes that kind of reaction. When Christians, and I know this guy's a Christian, but when Christians start saying, I can never love a God who would do that, well, that's a pretty reckless thing to say, right? You can never love a God who would do that. And, and my whole attitude is like, well, God loved you enough to do that for you. But that's a whole different conversation. In any case, the, this, this reaction is because the majority of American evangelicals are under the impression that the atonement of Jesus Christ paid for the sins of all people unilaterally no, matter, unilaterally, no matter what. I mean, when He came and died, He paid for everyone, past, present, and future. All has been paid. It's all been paid. They would say, that's what Jesus paid it all means. They say that Jesus died to save all people, and really the only thing holding them back, holding a, a great many people back from the benefits of His atonement, from the benefits of His death, is really the only thing holding them back is their, their unbelief and their lack of faith. That's the issue. Now, the Arminians, this group of Dutch theologians and students back in the 1600s, really 1610 was where they started to unpack this, but it was addressed almost 10 years later. But they originally presented this particular view at the Synod of Dort. And, and their view became known as universal atonement, universal atonement. And, and here's the funny thing. I think that all Arminians, if they're going to be honest, they have to admit to limited atonement. Because I don't think the majority of Arminians are willing to say that Christ, you know, uh, that, that uh, here's actually what they say, is what they actually say is that obviously the atonement can't apply to those who do not believe, because then, then we'd have universal salvation. So, so the Arminian has to, has to admit, even though he may not want to, he has to admit that the atonement is, is limited, and it, at least it's limited by people's lack of faith. Okay? So, so you have to admit that the atonement is limited, right? Do, are we going to believe, and I think some of them do, are we going to believe that there are people that are burning in hell under the, under the righteous, holy judgment of God that Jesus atoned for? Okay, we'll talk about that in a little bit. So, so the Arminian has to admit to a limited atonement. And he would say, well, of course, the atonement's not going to cover those who reject Jesus. There's your limited atonement. Now, the Calvinist just says, well, the atonement's not limited based on people's unbelief. It's limited by design. There's the major difference. But I think we all have to admit that the atonement is limited in one way, shape, or form. So they made this argument at the Synod of Dort, the Remonstrants. They made this argument, and I think you know how the story goes by now if you've been listening to our messages, especially the first week. The Calvinists responded at the Synod of Dort, and they presented their arguments in de defense of what the church already affirmed through its creeds, especially the Belgic Confession. They defended what had been already affirmed, and that's limited atonement. And then after about nine months of careful study and debate, what happened? The Synod sided with the Calvinists and expelled the Arminians from Holland. So they basically rejected unlimited atonement and upheld limited atonement. And I think it's a, it, this is a good time to remind you of something I said the first week. There wasn't 31,000 flavors of Christianity at this point in church history. There was Roman Catholicism and there was Reformed Protestantism. 
So we, we need to not think that, well, there were a bunch of Arminian churches out there doing their own thing and expressing their faith differently. That's not the way that it worked out in the Reformation. The Reformation was a Reformed Reformation. It was a call back to true biblical doctrine. So the churches that, that initially came out of the Reformation were all Reformed. This is why I really don't like to distinguish Reformed churches from non-Reformed because Christianity is, in a sense, Reformed through and through. We make that distinction because we know there's churches out there that aren't Reformed. But for the most part, the Protestant movement, the Reformation, was a Reformed movement. Now, years after it was kind of launched, 1519 or so, and even earlier than that, but really the pivotal moment is with Luther, uh, with, with Luther nailing the thesis on the door. From that moment on, the churches that were birthed out of that movement, they were all Reformed. They were all Lutheran, and not today's Lutheran, but Reformed Lutheran, and they they, they, as Calvin started his ministry, they were Calvinistic and they were reformed in nature. So this is not like, well, we just had a different expression and they agreed with a different... No, 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 no. This was an anomaly. This was a schism with the Arminians. These, these were Arminians who were really, what they were trying to do is bring Roman Catholicism into Protestantism because Roman Catholicism teaches universal atonement and and, 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 and full autonomy and a free will and all these sorts of things. So that's all this was. We need to make sure we understand this. And when it came to this synod, the leaders of this synod ruled in favor of what the church already believed and affirmed through its creeds. And they gave the Arminians the boot. And of course, they let the Arminians back in later and then all heck broke loose. Uh, this morning, we are going to take up this subject of atonement. We will begin to build a biblical case for limited atonement. And I believe the evidence from Scripture will be both overwhelming and irrefutable. You might ask yourself, well, how do people land at these views? Well, usually it has to do with really bad Bible interpretation. We take a, a verse at face value and we, we run crazy with it and we have no concept of the context or even the original language. And, and, and when you interpret the Bible without context and without any knowledge of original language with bad hermeneutics, you can go anywhere with Scripture. You can begin to say that, well, homosexual marriage is God's plan. How do they come up with that? The same way that you come up with Arminianism, the same way that you come up with any other apostasy or heresy. So it takes careful study of Scripture to land right on the meaning. And we're going to attempt to do that here. I'm not the best Bible teacher. Believe me, there's other guys out there that can do it better than me, but we're going to, we're going to give it a go. And I think the evidence will be good. And I, and I also think that this was originally going to be a one-part sermon or lecture. Ain't happening. It's too much to cover. At some point, I'm going to have to take all of the verses that the Arminians used to build their case, and I'm going to have to give an accurate interpretation from context on each of those verses. That could be a lecture in and of itself. So we're going to have maybe two to three parts in this deal. Today we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at, firstly, God's eternal decree. This is a major doctrine in Scripture that's not talked about much. And then we're going to look at, secondly, limited atonement in the Old Testament. And I would just say that the Old Testament speaks to atonement far less than the New Testament does, but there are some pockets of it, and the evidence is clear for limited. And then, obviously, we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to look at limited atonement there in the New Testament. So God's eternal decree, limited atonement in the Old Testament, and then 
limited atonement in the New Testament. And that's going to kind of set the stage. I'd like to pray before we get to work here. Uh, Father, we just ask that you help us uh, through your spirit and through your word to see and hear and know and understand your word and to apply your word and to believe your word. And I, I think that you, you give those who are yours grace in the midst of all this tension and, and difficulty. I, I, we have Arminian brothers and sisters, and, and I know I certainly kind of came out of that. We have them. They're here, that, that maybe even part of this church, but they're a part of your, your church worldwide. And, and there's great tension here, and they've been taught things, and they've interpreted the Bible a certain way, and, and I know you give us grace in the midst of this, and, and, I, and I know, and, and I believe, I really do believe that your desire is to align us with your word and will, and so we pray that um, we're not responsible for Christians and Arminians or anyone else outside of this, uh, these parameters per se, we're responsible for, for our body here, and so we pray that you sanctify us and teach us and align us and, and help us to have an accurate understanding of soteriology so that we can align ourselves with the truth. And as we present the gospel, these things will be in our minds. And we will certainly, if we understand these things rightly, we will not be led or uh, um, encouraged or emboldened to use man-made tactics and all these sorts of things that, that come out of a wrong soteriology. So just help us to preach the gospel as it, as it is in Scripture and to entrust the, the results to you because you're the only one that can change hearts. You know, salvation is an impossibility for man, but nothing is impossible for you. And you have made a way for us, and more than a way, you have made a reality for, for your people. And so may we come to understand that today. May we not kick against the goads of a limited atonement. May we embrace what the Word says. Uh, give us willing, humble, open hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin with God's eternal decree. I think that this particular reality and doctrine might be one of the most fascinating and, and maybe even mysterious things that we see in Scripture, and, and it's not something where you read a line in Scripture and it just says God's eternal decree. You see God decreeing before the foundation of the world throughout the Bible, and when we're, you know, I mean, think about this. We know that God predestined people to salvation before the foundation of the world. We're, we, we'd, it'd be kind of neat, this was before time and space, but it'd be kind of neat to know when that happened, because it did happen. There was a moment when God did that, and, and that God's eternal decree deals with that, and there's also a thing called the eternal counsel of God that we talk about, theologians talk about, and that's a meeting that, that transpired before anything was created where God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit worked things out and laid out everything, and so that's really what we're talking about here, big, awesome doctrine that's very mysterious. Now, I think we would all agree that when we think of atonement, right? I know at least I do. When we think of atonement, where do our minds usually go to? They, they go to Calvary. They go to the cross. They fly right to the cross. And we envision Jesus, you know, the Son of God. We see Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior. We see Him there, the Son of Man. We see Him dying on the cross and making an atonement. That's what our minds think of. That's what we envision. We envision the, the Lamb of God suffering and bleeding and, and dying to atone for our sins. Or maybe our minds go a, a little further back and we think of the sacrificial system that was in place really up to 
Jesus. Now it continued on after that, but it had no value because Jesus is the final lamb. But maybe we, we envision the, the, the temple, you know, and the old covenant and the temple, and we can see the altar of God in our mind's eye, and we see people bringing their sacrificial animals and those animals being slayed over the altar and burned up to do what? Make a, an atonement for their sins. Maybe that's what comes to mind. Maybe we think of the sacrificial system. Maybe we think of the cross. I know I certainly do. And it's certainly not wrong for our minds to go to these events or points in history. But we need to understand that, that the cross and the sacrificial system are not the actual starting point. They're not the starting point. Atonement was conceived in the infinite mind of God in eternity past, when God declared the end from the beginning and said, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Isaiah 46, verse 10. You might want to write that verse down or mark it in your bulletin. I think it's in the verse list, but Isaiah 46, 10 gives us a little glimpse of the eternal counsel of God where this meeting took place or the eternal decree of God, right? Isaiah 46.10, a great verse. Limited atonement can be traced all the way back to what we call God's eternal decree. God from, from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. We see that statement in doctrinal reality in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 15 and verse 18, in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, and of course in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. This is that moment before time and space where God ordains all things. He sets it all up. This is like God's eternal divine planning meeting that he had before anything existed. According to God's eternal decree, the Father elected from the entire fallen human race. Now think about this. Before anyone ever existed, he did this. It's all in his mind, right? He knows and, and he plans according to his will here. So we don't even have a world yet. And yet here... In this eternal decree, the Father is electing from the entire fallen human race that will exist. He is electing a special people that He will give to His Son. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 alludes to this. John chapter 6, verse 37, the Father giving the Son this people. He didn't just give the Son these people as the Son moved throughout His ministry in the incarnation, he gave them to the Son according to eternal decree before anything existed. And the Son, right? So the Father elects, and it's a kind of a, a covenantal promise from the Father to the Son to give the Son a people, really as a gift in a sense. And then the Son's part, he agrees to enter the world, right? He agrees, I will come into the world. I will be the God-man. I am God, but I will become man, and I will enter the world. Why? To make atonement for the elect so that they can be mine. See, it was necessary, even though they are given by the Father to the Son, it's necessary that atonement transpire because we're talking about a bunch of spiritually dead sinners here that have to be atoned for. They, they have to have their sins taken care of. They have to be redeemed. There, there has to be a propitiation to get them. 
There, there's a clause here in a sense. I'll give them to you, but you've got to buy them. That's what transpired in eternity past. Now, John chapter 10, verse 15 talks about this in a sense. So the father elects, the son agrees to enter the world to make atonement for that, that people group that's a gift to him, the elect. The Holy Spirit at this point agrees to bring the elect to spiritual life and call them to salvation, right? John chapter 1, verse 13, John chapter 3, verse 5, Romans chapter 8, verse 11, and verse 30. So, according to God's eternal decree, God the Father wrought the plan of salvation, God the Son bought the plan of salvation, and God the Holy Spirit brought the plan of salvation. What am I telling you? According to the eternal decree, all three members of the Godhead are involved in the salvation of God's people. The Father has a part in it, the Son has a part in it, the Spirit has a part in it. Now here's to our shame. It's not wrong to give Christ all the glory. He's the one we focus on on these things. But we mustn't forget that the Father and the Holy Spirit have massive roles in this whole deal. And so what does that mean? That we should give glory to all three for what they've done. It's the Father's plan. There's no plan unless He designs it. He's the chief architect. The Son is the purchaser. The Spirit is the bringer. He's the guy that delivers it. He's the Amazon truck that pulls up in front of your house. And I go, whippee, more gun parts. But He gives you a lot more than gun parts. My wife's like, no more gun parts. She said that the other day. I remember everything she says. Not everything, just most of it. All three members are involved in, in this situation, and, and they were all involved in it and planning it and laying it out according to the eternal decree before anything existed, right? There has to be a point of contact for predestining people and all these things, and this is when it happened. This is big stuff here. So, so the point, the atonement, we think of the cross, we think of the sacrificial system, but we need to go further back. The atonement was decreed by God before the foundation of the world. That's God's eternal decree. That is the starting point, my friends. Our salvation was conceived in the infinite mind of God before anything existed, planned, designed, predestined. How wonderful is that? How amazing is that? How ridiculous is it for people to say that, uh, you know, God didn't anticipate the fall and ever since then He's been trying to catch up with what people have been doing. This was, He ordained the fall. He planned it all. So the starting point is God's eternal decree. That's where atonement was conceived and agreed to. God also designed the atonement to fit with the rest of His plan of salvation. Okay? When, when, God, when God was the, the architect on this deal, He laid it all out. He had a specific plan for and designed each component to fit perfectly, to, to be a, a, a chain, if you want to call it that. And, and the doctrine of election literally tells us that God did not choose everyone for salvation, right? We learned this last Sunday. I think we would all agree. The doctrine of election shows from eternity past God electing a people to salvation, not everyone. If God had elected everyone to salvation, then what would happen? Everyone would be saved. So the doctrine of election tells us that God did not choose everyone for salvation, right? We learned this last Sunday. We focused on this. Now, here's a question I have for you. Remember, we're talking about the design of the atonement. Why would God send Jesus to atone for everyone's sins when He did not choose everyone for salvation? Huh? Why would He do that? 
If he laid this whole thing out in eternity past, elected some to salvation, the Son agrees to go purchase them, the Spirit agrees to go, go and get them and deliver them out of, out of sin's death, death and sin's bondage and all this. things. If there was this plan in place, which the Bible clearly shows, why would God send Jesus to atone for non-elect people? Why would He do that? Okay, so, so, so by implication, this would mean that Jesus paid for the sins of those who are in hell. By implication, it means that He paid for the sins of the reprobate. That sounds like an ugly term. It is kind of an ugly term, but what does it actually mean? The non-elect, those who will never believe. It would mean that Jesus paid for the sins of Pharaoh, whom God raised up to destroy. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, Romans chapter 9, verse 17. It would mean that, that, that God sent Jesus to atone for the sins of Judas, that devil-possessed son of perdition. Luke chapter 22, verse 3, John chapter 17, verse 12. It would mean, like, if He sent Him to die for everyone... He would be dying for people that he didn't choose for salvation. He, he would be dying to pay for the sin debt of the reprobate. He would be dying to pay for the sin debt of Pharaoh and people whom God raised up for the purpose of displaying his power through their destruction. He would, he would be paying for Judas, this demon-possessed devil, if you will, who would have been better off not living. It would mean, ultimately, in the ultimate sense, that Jesus lost some he paid for. Well, he paid for everybody, but, but, but not everybody gets saved, meaning that he's losing people he died to redeem and atone for. But it was Jesus himself who said this, I shall lose none of those the Father has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. John 6, 39. I shall lose none. Well, if he atoned for the whole world, then he's lost more than he's gained. But if you're Spurgeon, you think there's going to be more people in heaven than in hell. And I, I don't know if I agree with him on that. The great Puritan Thomas Manton wrote, Election is ascribed to God the Father, reconciliation to Jesus Christ, and sanctification to the Spirit. This is the chain of salvation. And a link of this chain must not be broken. The Son cannot die for them the Father never elected. And the Spirit will never sanctify them whom the Father has not elected, nor the Son redeemed. This is a wonderful statement by one of the great Puritans of probably the 1600s, I think, is when Manton was around. So, so we have God's eternal decree where Father, Son, Holy Spirit lay out the plan of salvation. Each one has a role. There's an election that takes place. There's an agreement to purchase the elect. There's an agreement made by the Spirit to go down and bring salvation to them, to bring them to life in time and space. Right? And it speaks to limited atonement. Number two, limited atonement in the Old Testament. So, it, it's important that we understand how the sacrificial system actually works. Okay, the Arminian seemingly doesn't understand this. It's important that we understand this. And I think some of you gals are studying the tabernacle and stuff right now, so you're, you're going to be like, hey, I got, I got more answers for you after the sermon, right? You, you know a thing or two that I'm probably not going to cover here. 
But I just want to help shape our understanding of, of the sacrificial system. When, when an Israelite brought a sacrificial offering to the temple, it was brought to make a temporary atonement for his or her sins. Okay? The blood of the innocent animal was specifically applied to them. It covered their sins, not the sins of their neighbors, not the sins of the surrounding communities, not the sins of the people living over in Turlock, and certainly not the sins of the entire world. Now, now if you want to, to really examine this on your own time, I would suggest you do that. Go back to Leviticus and, and read chapters 1 through 10. It talks about the sacrificial system, and, and it talks about the atonement. And, and, and it, it talks about how you have to make an atonement for sin. It talks about specific sins. It talks about sins you committed that you didn't realize you committed. There's an atonement for every kind of thing. And every one of those atonements is specific to the individual. Every one of those sacrifices and atonements is specific to the individual offering it. Every time. Do the, do the research yourself. Uh, when we think of the high priest... When the high priest made a sacrifice on Yom Kippur, that's the Day of Atonement, right? You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16. When he went and made this, this sacrifice on Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, it was meant to cover his sins and it was meant to cover the sins of Israel, the covenant people of God, and no one else. No one else. I like what... Uh, and actually, you can also see that in, in Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. So Leviticus 16, Exodus chapter 30, verse 10. Now, I like what Jeff Thomas wrote here. This is good because he's, he's just, he's saying what I'm saying, but in a much better way. Atonement was for those who took a lamb without spot or blemish and led it to the altar where they in faith put a hand on its head and then handed it over to the priest to be slain and have its blood sprinkled on the altar. Only such a person could have any assurance that his sins had been atoned for. There was no universal purpose in the Mosaic sacrifices. The Egyptians who worshipped their gods and the Babylonians who you know, sacrificed to their idols and the Assyrians and the Canaanites and the Medes and, and the Persians all prostrating themselves before their idols of stone, of gold and silver. None of them had their sins purged away by the Jewish sacrifices made at the altar erected outside the tabernacle or later at the temple in Jerusalem. Only Israel's sins were pardoned on the Day of Atonement when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sacrifice. Only the names of the 12 tribes of Israel carried, were carried upon his breastplate. He had actually them engraved on his breastplate, the 12 names. Okay, so, so, so what am I teaching you? I, I, I'm teaching you that every atoning sacrifice that was offered was specifically applied. It had a particular target. Okay? When God the Father elected some to salvation before the foundation of the world, God the Son agreed to come and atone for them and for them alone. His sacrifice, His atonement was specific and targeted just as every Old Testament sacrifice was specific and targeted. You understand the logic of it? Now, I think at this point we would all agree 
that the precious blood of Jesus could have easily atoned for everyone's sins. I would say that it could have covered the sins of a million, a billion, a trillion worlds. His blood was of infinite value. But we're not talking about value here. We're talking about vicinity. We're talking about scope. We're talking about who's actually covered by his precious, valuable blood. We're not talking about value. We're talking about scope. I like what Lorraine Botner wrote. Yeah, it's a dude. Limited atonement does not mean that any limit can be set to the value or power of the atonement which Christ made. The value of the atonement depends upon and is measured by the dignity of the person making it. And since Christ suffered as a divine human person, the value of his suffering was infinite. That's wonderful. The atonement, therefore, was infinitely meritorious and might have saved every member of the human race if that had been God's plan. It was limited only in the sense that it was intended for and is applied to particular persons, the elect. Now, just to bolster what I'm telling you here, so do we all understand, are we all on the same page here? In the sacrificial system, which is God's designed sacrificial system, which obviously paves the way for the ultimate lamb to come. Within the sacrificial system, God has designed every atonement made to be specifically applied to either, to either the individual who's making it or to the nation by the high priest. It's everyone is, every one of those atonements by those animals and by those people making them is limited in its scope. Like, like if I went down to the temple back in the old days to, to make an offering, that, that offering that I make, and, and you, have to be awesome, uh, you have to be a person of faith too. You have to believe that this is actually working. This is what God has done. You're obeying God in doing this. If I went down to the altar and, and said, well, here, you know, here's Phoebe. Now, that's cruel. That's my dog. She's getting close. Uh, getting real old. But if I took an animal, if I raised a lamb and, and brought it down there and, 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 then, and then laid my hands on it and confessed my sin, then the priest and took it and, and slaughtered. This is exactly what they did. During, during Passover, it was a blood fest in, in Jerusalem. It would have been disgusting to see. I mean, there would have been millions of animals being slaughtered. When, when I went down and did that out of faith, my sins were atoned for temporarily while pointing to the ultimate lamb who would come. It didn't have anything to do with Steve's sins. Even if I had brought Steve with me, and we were both standing next to each other going, I don't know what they did in Hebrew. It, Steve is not covered. Steve's not covered by this atonement. He has to, by faith, bring his own animal, and then he is covered. So, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, what am I telling you? Limited atonement. It applies only to the individual offering it whether that be the high priest for the nation, whether that be the individual who lives over on Wolfboro Avenue. doesn't matter. Limited. Now, I want you to turn over to Isaiah 53. That's God's design for the sacrificial system. Isaiah 53, wonderful passage we're, we're all very familiar with. It's a messianic, prophetic passage, when the prophet Isaiah, who, whom I think is probably one of the greatest prophets, but when he penned this incredible messianic prophecy, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing to the covenant people of God. This is not 
<laughs> this is not a prophetic book that was written to the world. Okay, in fact, the Bible wasn't written to the world. It was written to the covenant people of God. It's only the people of God who can dis discern it. So, so, so understand, when, when we're talking about Isaiah 53 or really anything in Scripture, there's a targeted audience here. And Isaiah is writing to, to bring up the morale and give hope to the people of God. This is during the time where they were deported and all that stuff. They were brought into Babylon and what have you. Now, he's writing to the covenant people of God. How do I know this? Well, first of all, Hermeneutics 101 or Interpretation 101. But if you want to just slide back to Isaiah chapter 52, you will see the phrase, my people, at least three times. So in the immediate context, Isaiah is writing to my people. That's God speaking. So that's God's people. So this is written to the covenant people of God. All right? That's the immediate context. In chapter 53, Isaiah vividly describes whom the coming Messiah will atone for when He actually comes, which, by the way, was about between 700 and 800 years later after Isaiah penned this. He describes whom the coming Messiah is going to atone for. All right? Verse 4, chapter 53, verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, there's an idea and an indicator. He's talking about our. Who is He talking about? The covenant people of God. My people, my people, my people. When He comes, He will bear the griefs and the sorrows of God's covenant people, the elect. Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He's talking about these things already being done in the past tense. And they hadn't even happened yet. That's pretty amazing. Why? Because in God's plan, it's done. Because He doesn't exist in time. He was pierced. The coming Messiah will be pierced for our transgressions. Whose? My people, my people, my people. He will be crushed for our iniquities. Who? My people. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us. Who's the us? The covenant people of God. What did it bring them? Peace. And it's with His wounds because He will be wounded. He will be tortured. He will be crucified. It's by His wounds that who will be healed? We, the covenant people of God. Verse 6. The Lord had, and here's one the Arminians use, the Lord has laid on Him, on the coming Messiah, the iniquity of us all. Well, that certainly has to be the whole world. Well, go back to 52 and read, my people, my people, my people. It's not all people. This is an atonement. The, the iniquity is the sin of God's people being put on this coming Messiah. Uh, verse 8, He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of whom? What does it say? Is anyone following along in there? Shout it. My people. Verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? The people that he just purchased that God promised to give him. Verse 10 or verse 11, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, who is he referring to? Chapter 52, my people, my people, my people. In fact, my people in verse 8, he's still referring to them. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of the entire world. Oh, wait a minute. Are you reading your Bible? What does it say? Yet he bore the sin of many. 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. I'm not exactly sure how anyone can read this particular text that talks about the, the person and work of the Messiah coming within its context of referring to the covenant people. I don't know how sure anyone can turn this into universal atonement. It's so limited and specific. It's, it's, it's so lucidly clear. It, it, it's irrefutable. Well, but no, he, 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 he laid on Christ the iniquity of every man, woman, and child for all time, even those in hell. No. My people, my people, my people. Well, what, what, what are we talking about here? Isaiah presents what? Limited atonement. The sacrificial system, as described in Leviticus chapters 1 through 10 and chapter 16, presents limited atonement. We even see limited atonement. Remember, the Old Testament doesn't talk about it as much as the New Testament. That's why I don't have a zillion verses for you. The Old Testament talks about a lot of things, not just the atonement. The New Testament focuses a lot on the atonement. We even see limited atonement in Micah, right? The little minor prophet book, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, where Micah says this, and he's just blown away because he's surrounded by terrible idolatry of, of, you know, sticks and stone idols that are mute and blind and can't speak, can't save, can't do anything. He's surrounded by all of this in his culture, and he blurts out, who is a God like you? In other words, there's no God like you. Who is a God like you? And listen to what he says. You're pardoning the iniquity and, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Remnant. What is the remnant? The elect. It's another word for my people, elect, chosen ones, true Israel. He is pardoning the iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant, not the whole world. Right there in the Old Testament. If universal atonement was God's plan all along, here's my point of logic. Listen carefully. If universal, the Arminian insists on this, if universal atonement was God's plan all along, you would think we would see it in the Old Testament passages that describe the atonement. Right? Instead, what do we see? Specific, targeted atonement. We see limited atonement. That's what we see. That's what we see. You will not find anywhere in the 66 books of the Old Testament where an atonement was made for the entire world. You will not find it. I searched. You cannot find it. Now, that's not to say that the atonement of Christ doesn't benefit the entire world in many ways, because it does. It does. Think of the impact the church has had on the world for the last 2,000 years. We started the first hospitals. We started the first seminaries. The church did all these things. The church has been a powerful force for good and righteousness in the world. In fact, I think the world would be long destroyed if it hadn't been for the church being here. What am I telling you? The impact of Christ's atonement has been very positive on the entire world. It has, but it hasn't saved the entire world, nor has it atoned for the entire world. That's limited atonement in the Old Testament. Think sacrificial system. Think a prophetic passage that deals with atonement, Isaiah 53. Think, think Micah chapter 7. And I'm sure we could find it in other places, but we only have so much time. That was number two. Number three, 
limited atonement in the New Testament. Now, this is where it's like, did you really need to put that many verses in there, Lord? Because there's, there's so many, there's no way. This is what, just looking at these verses, this is what screwed me up and caused me to have to break up this lecture into multiple parts because there's no way. There's just too many. It's everywhere. Uh, firstly, we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. I mean, if you want to follow along, that's fine. This is, this is where we see the angel, I think, Gabriel communicating with Joseph, right? I think it was Gabriel, because if it was Gabriel who spoke to Mary, then it was probably Gabriel who spoke to Joseph. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. Now, you remember, Joseph, finding out that uh, finding out certain things about Mary, was hesitant to go ahead and marry her, right? And here's the angel visiting him to, in a dream and convincing him, you need to do this, and, and she's, she's going to conceive, and it's going to be from the Holy Spirit. And here's what the angel says. She's going to have a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So, so, so God picks the name for Jesus and delivers the name through the angel. And listen to what it says here. For he will save his people from their sins. Their, you save his people from their sins. His, his people, his people, his people. That's, what are we talking about here? We're talking about atonement. Who is the atonement in this verse limited to? His people. Matthew 26, verse 28, Jesus was saying this, and this is during uh, the Last Supper. Jesus said, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Many. Now, if universal atonement was God's plan, would He not say, this is, my, this is the, the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for everybody's sins or the sins of the entire world? Yeah, this statement is so plain, it's for Many, not all. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for what? Many. Many. Giving His life as a ransom speaks to atonement. I am going to make an atonement for the entire world? No. Many, many. John 6, 39. And this is the will of Him who sent me. He's referring to the Father's will for, for Himself, for Jesus. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. We covered this verse a minute ago. This is that special body and group of elect individuals that God chose in eternity past, this is a verse that refers to Him giving them to, the, to His Son, to His begotten Son, to His only begotten Son, to His cherished Son. And what does the Son say? I won't lose any of them. I'm not going to lose any of them. They, they're people that you gave me. What, what is Christ going to do when He goes to the cross? Atone for the ones who were given to Him and no one else. 
And there's a series of verses in John 10. We can look at verse 11, verses 14 to 15, verse 29. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for whom? His sheep or the sheep. Limited atonement. I am the good shepherd, he says. I know my own and my own know me who are his own, his sheep, those who were given to him as a gift by the Father. Listen, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. What's he talking about? Atonement. For whom? The sheep. My Father who has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me. The sheep, the elect, these people. He is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them from the Father's hands. Is what Jesus says. Limited atonement is all over. One, two, three, four verses in John 10. My sheep, my sheep, my own. The Father gave them to me. I will lay down my life for them. I don't know how you can't see this. John chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus dies to what? Gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who, 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 who did he die to gather in the whole world? No, the children of God who are scattered abroad. John chapter 17, verse 6, 9, and verse 24. Jesus is speaking. <sighs> Relax, Phil. I think this is, this is what's so unnerving. This is the part that's so unnerving for me. And what gets me so upset is that the Scripture is so clear, and yet people go, I don't see it. Arminianism. And I have to just calm down. I have, to, I have to back it up a little bit like Gil. I've got to back it up a little bit and relax. I'm not here to beat you up. But it's so clear. What did Jesus say? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Hmm. Of all the people in the world, the Father selected some out and gave them to the Son. He promised to do this. By eternal decree. I'm not manifesting your name, Father, to the rest of the world, but to those whom you gave me, is what he's saying. Listen to what he says. Yours they were. Well, man, it sounds like the Father's got an equal share in this people. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And listen to what he says. I know here specifically he's referring to the 11 disciples, but I think there's a broader meeting here because later on he talks about everyone else. He says, not just these ones, but my sheep that are everywhere else. He says, you, and, and you have given them to me and they have kept your word. I am praying for them. Listen to what he says. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Wow. He's not done. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of 
the world over and over in the verse. Those you gave me, those you gave me, those you gave me. That's who I'm atoning for. I want them to, to come to heaven to be with me after my ascension. When they die, I want them to be with me. I want them to behold my glory and to see how I've been around since before time. That you've loved me all along. Limited atonement. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Uh, this is uh, an exhortation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen to this. So now we're talking flock, right? What is a flock? It's a bunch of sheep gathered together. He's referring to the elect, to the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay attention to every sheep, everyone, no matter how difficult they may be at times. Pay attention to all of them. Don't, don't just pay attention to the ones that make your ministry easy for you. Pay attention to the ones who are extremely difficult. I'm confessing stuff right now. Pay attention to the whole flock, elders, right, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Who makes an elder at a church? Is it the elders they appoint? No, it's the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says. Pay attention to the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, underline that, church of God, which Christ obtained with his own blood. There's atonement. Who did Christ atone for? The flock, the church of God, not the world, not the whole world. A lot of people in the world, but not the whole world. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Christ, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Atonement. Who did he give himself up for? The church. That he might sanctify her. These are marital terms here. In fact, right before this, he talks about husbands love your wives. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word and with the word, or by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Who is the target of the atonement here? It is the church. It is her. It is her. It is her. It is the church. It is she. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Contextually, Titus, uh, Titus was written... It was written to Titus... Okay, Paul wrote Titus on behalf of the elect. He wrote it to Titus on behalf of the elect. So, so, so the target of the letter Titus, this very short little cool letter where we find some, some layout for elders and stuff like that. It's a, it's a wonderful little letter. Who was it written to? The elect, the people of God, the sheep, the church, my people, right? If you don't believe me, go back and read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. Paul says, who gave himself up, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. The giving of himself up refers to making an atonement for them. 
so that they could become a people of his own possession. He's writing to the elect. This is all about limited atonement. He gives himself up for them. They will be his people, his people alone, nobody else. Atonement, limited. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This was written to the scattered elect exiles. Chapter 1, verse 1. Again, next week we'll talk about some of these verses that the Arminians use, and we're going to bring them into context. The context here, this is written to elect exiles who were scattered all over because of massive persecution. What does he say? The Arminian says, he bore all our sins here. He's not writing to everyone. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do that? Because he was making an atonement. He bore our sins. He didn't say the sins of the world. Our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live, by, uh, live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, that sounds like a citation from Isaiah 53. It is. He's writing to the elect. He's talking about how Christ bore the sins of the elect, made an atonement for them. What? That they would die to sin and live to righteousness? That's what salvation really is. And that He has healed our wounds, the elect, the elect's wounds, the chosen people of God. Uh, let's see. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. We can go all day. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He made an atonement here in this verse, according to this verse, for many. He will appear at the, uh, a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Who's going to be eagerly waiting for Him? The whole world? No, the world killed Him. The elect are going to be waiting for Him. Those whom He bore the sins of and redeemed and saved. Uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 4, uh, this verse doesn't, it's not about limited atonement. It's about reprobation, which proves the doctrine of election. I added it in here as a little bonus. We're talking about false teachers. The, it, Jude is talking about false teachers who are consigned to hell from eternity past. Okay, so... According to the doctrine of election, if God chose some for salvation, then that means He left others alone to go ahead and go to hell. And maybe that's what drives the Arminian crazy, because he thinks that everyone should be able to get saved. Well, it's a troublesome truth, but it's reality. When you've created everything, you get to do with the creation what you want. And we need to not be under the impression that the church is not large. It is. The true church is. Listen to what it says, Jude 1.4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I put this verse in there because it shows that He didn't make an atonement for everyone. In eternity past, there are some who are consigned to hell, to destruction, to condemnation. Hey, I'm not the Creator. I didn't set it up. It's what God did. And really, the way that I look at reprobation is God, He doesn't have to, all right, I'm sending you to heaven, I'm sending you to hell. He doesn't even have to do that. I'll send you to heaven. I'll just leave the others as they are. And they'll go right to hell willingly. That's my view of reprobation. It's just leaving people alone in their sin, which they love. And that's essentially what's being said here. What does it prove? What does it disprove? Unlimited atonement. There's some who are going to go to hell, and it's been that way since eternity past. That's all there is to it. 
Lastly, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And this is the people of God singing here. This is the elect, those who have been redeemed and saved. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. What does that verse say? It says limited atonement, loud and clear. You ransomed a people for God from, not, you didn't ransom all nations for God. You ransomed for God through your atonement a people for God who are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's clear, right? It's clear. I think as we can see, and there are more verses, clearly we see limited atonement in God's eternal decree, clearly with election. Clearly we see God's limited atonement in the Old Testament, especially through the sacrificial system, Isaiah 53, which speaks to the atonement. Clearly we see limited atonement in the New Testament. It's most clear in the New Testament. Why is that? Because the New Testament addresses and deals with the work the Messiah did. The Old Testament's looking forward. The New Testament is essentially looking back at what Christ accomplished. It's everywhere in the New Testament. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. Now I need to conclude. The implications of unlimited atonement are disturbing. The implications of the Arminian view of the atonement are disturbing. They really are if you think about it. If Christ atoned for all people, then He paid for those who were in hell and for the reprobate. He even paid for those who were destined to destruction as in Jude 1.4. To me, that's disturbing that, that if, if unlimited atonement is true, then he, he died and atoned for people that aren't even going to be saved. That's, that's wasting the precious blood of Christ. If Christ atoned for all people, as the Arminian says, then His atonement wasn't directed toward anyone in particular. It wasn't. It wasn't for anyone in particular. It was for all unilaterally, right? If Christ atoned for all people, then His atonement wasn't directed toward anyone in particular, and the doctrine of election is a lie. If Christ atoned for all people, then salvation is nothing more than a mere possibility, and the burden to repent and believe falls upon spiritually dead sinners. Isn't this what Arminians preach? You better do something with what Christ did. He offers it to everyone. You better do something with it. Meanwhile, you're dead in your sin going, I don't know what to do with this. That's stupid. I, that doesn't have any value to me. If Christ atoned for all people, then Christ must be a liar because he said he came to die for those whom the Father had given him, for his sheep, for many. Unlimited atonement makes Christ a liar. If Christ atoned for all people, then Isaiah and Micah were false prophets because they limited the scope of the coming Messiah's atoning work, didn't they? Isaiah 53, Micah 7. If Christ atoned for all people, then the sacrificial system doesn't really point to Christ because it required targeted, specific, limited atonements. As I said earlier, if unlimited atonement was God's plan from, from eternity past, then why didn't the sacrificial system affirm that? You know, God is a God of order, 
and perfection. What transpired under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament gives us types and shadows, a picture of what was to come. There's not going to be a variation there. And yet the implications of limited atonement are, in, in my opinion, they're profound and very comforting. If Christ atoned for His people, then He paid for His people entirely, and not one drop of His blood was wasted. This is a precise, specifically applied atonement. And I get every ounce of it, and so do you if you were in Christ. It's not wasted. If Christ atoned for His people, then His atonement was directed at His people. And the doctrine of election is upheld. If Christ atoned for His people, then salvation is not a mere possibility. It is a sovereign act of God. And the burden, which is no burden at all, falls upon the Holy Spirit, who agreed to bring the elect to spiritual life and call them to salvation. If Christ atoned for His people, then Christ tells the truth, and He fulfills His promises. I have come to die for many. I have come to lay down my life for my sheep. The Father gave them to me. I will die and atone for them. I will buy them. They will be mine. They will be my precious prize. If Christ atoned for His, his people, then Isaiah and Micah are true prophets who accurately describe the person and work of the coming Messiah, accurately describe the atonement He would make. If Christ atoned for His people then the sacrificial system provides real types and shadows that now affirm Christ's person and work. But the Arminian insists, insists that Christ's atonement applies to all people unilaterally. He preaches unlimited atonement. He declares Jesus came to save everybody and he died for everybody. And he points to verses in the Bible. He says support his position. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we will identify some of these verses and examine each one in context. I'd like to close with Article 8 of the second head of doctrine from the Canons of Dort. 1619 is when this was written. This section of the Canons of Dort deals with the atonement of Christ. It was written by the brave, godly men who defended the doctrines of grace at the Synod of Dort against the Remonstrants, against the Arminians. That's who constructed this. Listen. For it was the entirely free plan and gracious will and intention of God, God the Father, that the enlivening and saving effectiveness of His Son's costly death should work itself out in all the elect, in order that God might grant justifying faith to them only, and thereby lead them without fail to salvation. In other words, it was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, should effectively redeem from every people, tribe, nation, and language, all those and only those who were chosen from eternity past to salvation and given to Him by the Father, that Christ should grant them faith, which, like the Holy Spirit's other saving gifts, He required for them by His death. Listen to this. 
It was also God's will that Christ should cleanse them by His blood from their sins, both original and actual, whether committed before or after their coming to faith, that He should faithfully preserve them to the very end, and that He should finally present them to Himself, a glorious people without spot or wrinkle. Basically, what you just read is an educated article and section on limited atonement. This was the ruling of the Synod in 1619. They upheld the clear teachings of Scripture. Folks, we have a limited atonement. Is that a sad thing for you? If you are part of it, you ought to rejoice that you are among those whom God chose in eternity past. Why would we get upset at that? Because we think that we have a sense of entitlement. We think that others should get it too. That, that shows that we have a, our view of, of God is low and our view of humanity is high. What we ought to say and what we ought to do is not get upset like my college pastor friend who said I could never love a God like that. What we ought to do is say, I can't believe a God like that would save someone like me. Why? Why would He elect me? Why would He choose me? That's the right response. And then we know and have a full assurance because of the Spirit's work in us that we are actually chosen. The Spirit in us is a seal of that. We ought not question God on this. We ought not kick against Him on this. We ought to embrace this truth. It is mysterious. It is hard to, to understand. And in our minds, I think that it, it doesn't really seem fair, maybe. But then again, if fairness is what we want, then we all deserve hell because that's what's fair, because we have all committed cosmic treason against God. We don't want fairness. We want mercy. And God from before anything existed, had a plan with this in mind. He laid this whole thing out by His mercy to elect and redeem you. I rejoice over that. I rejoice over that, that He chose anyone. Amen? May we live for Him.